TFM. Welcome, boomers, to another episode of Warp 5, our dedicated Star Trek Enterprise podcast. I'm Christopher Jones, and with me, as always, is my esteemed co-host, Matthew Rushing. Matthew, I am so glad you could join me today for this wondrous event that I've been waiting 11 years for. We are going to see the great plume of Agasoria together. I am so excited. I feel like I've been waiting 900 years for this moment. I know. I've just, you know, time doesn't quite have meaning in this episode, I would say. No, uh, you know, but I feel like we could probably make a little time to talk about time, because I feel like we've got the time. Well, I think Troy would disagree with you. That's <laughs> true. Let's, <laughs> let's go ahead and jump in. We're continuing our 20th anniversary rewatch of Enterprise, and today's episode is Cold Front. Here's a quick recap. When the Enterprise encounters a freighter transporting a group of pilgrims, Archer sees the perfect opportunity for a little cultural exchange. But what first appears to be an enlightening religious experience turns deadly when the NX-01's engines are sabotaged and an unlikely figure comes to the rescue. Things only get stranger from there when crewman Daniels reveals that he is from 900 years in the future and charged with keeping an eye on factions fighting one another in a temporal Cold War. Yes, Matthew, a cold front is moving in, so let's bundle up and go ahead and start talking about this episode. And I thought maybe we'd just start with the Suliban. They're back. Yeah, this is a this is a really cool thing. We haven't seen them since Broken Bow. And um, I, I think one of the things, the mandate came from the top here in Enterprise that the temporal cold war was going to be something that they were going to touch a few times a year and and they were going to kind of space it out it wasn't going to be something that took over the entire show but it was going to kind of be an overarching theme so that a lot of things could play into it as they went along which in many ways very much reminds me of you know some of the more long-term planning that Deep Space Nine did especially in those later seasons uh, when you got into the war and they had been planting the seeds and then they started using the, you know, so I, I, to me, I, I think this is something that um, actually uh, works really well. And it's fun to have the Sulapon back because, you know, they it's it's a pretty interesting race. And of course, one of the things that that makes this a possibility is that CGI is good enough at this point that you can get away with all the types of things that they want them to do. I mean, it's still not perfect, but I mean, it, it, it looks pretty good even for television at this time. So, you know, yeah, I think, you know, this was kind of the right time in the season to, to bring them back. Yeah, it was good to see them. And you made an interesting point there, how in the later seasons of DS9, they had built some things up and, and they were starting to pay off. One thing, speaking of DS9, when you first started mentioning it, I thought that you might be going the route of the Maquis and how the Maquis were used in DS9, and they were set up in the next generation, and and the Bajorans themselves set up in the next generation. And what's interesting about the Sulabine is that there was a plan originally to use Voyager to set up the Sulabine for Enterprise mm, and have that same kind of 
handoff of the baton. And they had talked, there was an internal document where they mentioned that we will see the Suliban, we will meet the Suliban in the sixth season of Voyager to set them up for Enterprise. And there was this whole storyline about how the Suliban's homeworld had been destroyed by the Borg and then the Suliban had been scattered and that would play into the reason they are the type of people that they are and possibly how they became foot soldiers in the Temporal Cold War. So that would have been kind of interesting if they had done that. Do, do you think that would have helped or hurt how we perceived them as a race in Enterprise if we had met them before instead of them just suddenly appearing in Broken Bow? Yeah, I think that would have been interesting, um, although I do think that you kind of run into the problem of people not completely understanding everything unless they've seen Voyager. And I mean, wasn't the point of this show uh, to try and bring in new audience instead mm-hmm. of just relying on the traditional audience? And so I, I think you know, obviously it could have worked and it could have been fine. But I, I don't know um, if it would have given them exactly what they wanted. Now, I do think the idea is interesting to kind of explain the Suliban and the Star Trek universe and where they've come from. And honestly, you could have even just had a cool throwaway moment that would have been only for fans that, you know, they're originally from the Delta Quadrant mm-hmm. and... Um, all of that kind of stuff without necessarily having to completely set up everything in Voyager. It still could have just been a really neat throwaway moment where fans could have pieced it together and been like, oh, wow, they were actually yeah. a race in the Delta Quadrant, you know. Um, so I, I that, that stuff would have been, I think, cool. But as per whether it would have really helped Enterprise, I, I just don't know. And I, I think they are a race that even... And this will be interesting as we rewatch. I do kind of wish maybe that we had just gotten more of in general mm-hmm. and more behind the scenes. And if I do remember correctly, there is going to be some ability for us to also have some nuance with the Suliban that they're not all a part yeah. of the cabal and things like that coming right. up in the series, which is great as well. So it, I, I do feel like here so far, everything for the Suliban has been pretty mono species and in, in the sense that everybody's the same and thankfully that won't stay the same throughout this but i mean we kind of see too like one of the things i was struck by is just how terrible it is this future guy is they work for i mean yeah you know i it's it's a horrible setup and a, apparently having these types of powers is worth living your life like this but the way it's portrayed in the show i'm like I don't really think they're getting a lot for their deal here. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I think that might be where a little bit of backstory that could have come through Voyager might Mm. have helped that make a little more sense because it feels like they are doing these things for future guy to get these genetic enhancements to help their race Mm -hmm. recover from being decimated by the Borg and to try to, I don't know, rebuild their race or find a new path forward, maybe something along those lines. And we don't have that backstory. So then you kind of wonder, well, why, why is it so important to you to get these special abilities? Right. So that, that might have filled in that gap just a little bit. I guess the last point on that, I was thinking 
in terms of the way that Voyager could have set up the Sulawan for Enterprise and the way that TNG set up the Bajorans and Voyager set up the Maquis, but especially TNG set up the Bajorans for DS9, there is a big difference in that the Bajorans were the central point of the entire DS9 story. Mm-hmm. Cisco was sent there to bring them into the Federation, so you really did need to set them up ahead of time. Right. Rather than just suddenly there's this new planet that we want to have in the Federation. Whereas the Sulabine are just a kind of a minor part of what's going on on Enterprise. Well, and I, I mean, I will say too, it, you know, I think one of the things that Enterprise does do is that they do continue to put some focus on them. And again, we are going to get some variations uh, in the Sulabine species, which is fantastic. So, it's not as though uh, they don't actually do some of the work that you would feel like you'd want to do in, when having a species like this. And also give us different sides of the story, mm-hmm. um, which I think is right. great as well. So all in all, I think I, I really am just I'm glad they're back. It's it's it, it, obviously, again, I do feel like at this point in the season, it is kind of time to kind of revisit this a little bit so that you can push that thread forward of the temporal cold war. Yeah. Okay. So this is a good point I'm thinking of right now. At this point in the season, we we've been praising the episodes each week for what they do for the concept of a prequel humans getting into space for the first time, figuring out what it's like to interact with other species, other races they encounter, discovering new civilizations and such, which is all really interesting from a Star Trek perspective, and it supports the concept of the series. But if they were to continue doing that week after week at this point, and they didn't give us some kind of big mystery or bigger story like the Temporal Cold War, do you think that this would you start to feel like maybe the season is stagnating and the series isn't quite as interesting as it should be? Mm-hmm. See, I think you know, I was having this conversation with somebody the other day, and to me, Star Trek has always been about exploration in the first place, not universe ending somethings every single season which is and and you know that's what discovery is every every year is yeah. that the universe yeah. will end if we don't do that's that's not star trek that that's not even a star trek thing star trek is about the human condition and exploring right. that through exploration and so i think again what Enterprise picked up on that worked in Deep Space Nine that they tried to get away from in Voyager and kind of come back to here, which is it is okay to have some continuity throughout the series and to connect to the episodes loosely together. But at the same time, you don't want that to be the overarching thing. And in many ways, season three of Enterprise will become the thing that Discovery does every single year over and a lot of people didn't really like you know so i i do think that to me i know brandon and rick were i mean this was something the studio basically made them put in and i think that they handle it pretty well 
uh, in the sense that they're being forced to do something. So they're like, okay, if we're yeah. going to be forced to do this, we got to make it as good as we possibly can. And, uh, you know, to me, I don't dislike the temporal Cold War because I think it adds a layer of intrigue and interest and it helps drive home the point if you do it right. And and I'm not saying that I, I feel like they maybe do it right all the way through, but if you do it right, mm-hmm. you're accentuating Archer, this mission, everything that's happening. Like you're, you're kind of putting that stamp, you know, like this mm-hmm. is so important that, yeah, we would mess this up in the timeline because it would irrevocably screw up everything for humanity and the Federation. Right. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's not a bad idea. And so far, we've only had two episodes, you know, here in the series that play with this idea. But I think this one definitely adds some serious intrigue. And mm-hmm. so I, I have no problem with the temporal Cold War. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's very interesting. And it is true that it's not something that Rick and Brandon wanted to put in the series initially, and the studio pushed for it because you need something more futuristic in Star Trek. But they did both come around to the idea that it's interesting. Mm -hmm. And I think Rick thought it was maybe a bit more interesting than Brandon did from what I've heard and read and and gathered. But in the case of Brandon, he felt he has said that it's a interesting idea that probably would have worked better as its own show, Mm -hmm. which I think might be the case unless it could be incorporated into Enterprise more than it was, I think that it probably would work better as a standalone show because the way that it is presented to us is so stop and go that it's a bit hard unless you decide to sit down and watch all the temporal Cold War episodes together. When you go back to when the show originally aired and you think about how often we came back to this topic of the temporal Cold War, it's quite a bit disjointed. Mm -hmm. And that's one reason I think that it felt like it didn't fit as well with the series. A lot of fans feel that way. Mm -hmm. But the concept of it, I think, is really fascinating. And it's also interesting how Discovery did pick up on this, not directly, but the fact that when they get to the 32nd century, we find out that there have been all these laws put into place against time travel because Mm -hmm. of all the damage that was caused by the temporal cold war. And I'm trying to remember if they actually use the term temporal cold war on discovery. I don't think they say it so explicitly, but it seems quite clear that they're talking about this conflict that we see in enterprise. Yeah. I mean, I, I could agree with uh, what you're saying, you know, the whole idea of, Maybe it would have been helpful if there had been maybe a few more threads throughout, you know, especially the first season about this temporal Cold War thing. Maybe every two episodes, it's even just like hints, you know, I, I think mm-hmm. that's that's very true. And and I, I think it, it could have, have really been a benefit to the storyline. But, you know, I mean, it's, it's one of those things, too, I, I feel like. Enterprise is a place where they are truly trying to feel out how they're going to do the show um, and and what they're going to do and what they're not going to do. Um, and part of that even has to do with how they're going to, are they going to mimic any of the formulas that they've had before? They're trying to stay away from all that, you know? So, I mean, I, I, 
I guess maybe I'm just real forgiving of the conundrum that they're in at an enterprise. Um, and mm-hmm. yeah, there are plenty of places where I wish they had taken more risks and some of the places where else they didn't have, you know, didn't take certain risks, you know, like maybe not, don't risk putting the Ferengi in an episode, you know, instead <laughs> maybe use Tellarites or something, you know, like things like that. So, you know, yeah, I, I think, okay. I, you know, I think those are, and, and that's part of like fandom, right? You're you're always going yeah. to have issues with certain things. But to me, the temporal Cold War story is actually a, a really interesting idea. I do think it would have worked better almost as its own like sub show, or like you said, I think you just just do a couple more tidbits here and there, and I think you can really keep that kind of like Cold War fire burning, so right. that each episode you're kind of looking for the little nuggets well it could be something as simple as they come across something that is a bit of a mystery to them but for us we realize that it has some connection to the temporal cold war yeah it's a really good it's like when you rewatch deep space nine season two you see so many of the seeds of the Dominion War, the mm-hmm. encounter between the Alpha Quadrant and the Gamma Quadrant being planted along the way. And it wasn't obvious the first time it aired, but once you know the whole story, you go back, you can really see how they scattered that stuff around. So they could have done something like that. Could have been interesting. Yeah, I think you're right. What did you think about the Temporal Observatory? We keep talking every episode here on Warp 5 about Star Trek technologies that we're very familiar with, and we see them for the first time in season one of Enterprise. Here's a technology that we're not familiar with because it's from the 31st century. And I, I suppose we've gotten some glimpses of this type of thing on Voyager when, when we did have the temporal prime directive and all going on. But really here, seeing this temporal observatory was was kind of uh, fantastical and it was interesting to see Archer's reaction to the whole thing when he sees maybe how much bigger existence is than he had thought. I absolutely agree with you. I, I, this scene, I was kind of blown away by the way that Scott Bakula plays it mm-hmm. because he's just so dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really cool to have him play it that way. The fact that he just, he's having a hard time getting any words out on how to explain what he's seeing. Because this is so far out of his scope of reference. You know, it's, it's great. And I think there's a real realism to that. And I like the way that he plays that. And I think... Um, a lot of times he doesn't get the credit that he deserves, but the way he reacts to this temporal observatory, I think really is what helps sell the scene and sell the technology. I mean, he, I, even when he goes back to try and find it, you know, and it's gone and he's like, that thing that showed me stuff is, it's a, it's it's a paraphrase, <laughs> right. but it's not far off. We're like he right. doesn't even know how to explain to to Paul in any words in human language what this thing did. And so, yeah, I think this is a super interesting idea. I think it's a really good effect. 
I was surprised how well the effects still hold up for the scene because obviously yeah. they're just in a you know green screen set and they're creating this all around them. I will say that it is one of those things in Star Trek where it looks crazy and cool, but at the same time, it also it's like how how would you actually read this thing at all? It it, it doesn't make a ton of sense on how you you know right. like it's not right. intuitive in that way. So, but exactly. I mean, it's great. I I just you know I'm I'm being effusive in my praise, but I think I, it's really cool. Well, it, yeah, when you look at it, you're like, okay, I get the the threads or maybe timelines, but the other stuff floating around, how do you read that? And in some respect, Daniels sells it in that he knows what he's looking at, but at the same time, he's pointing, ah, they're right about here. And you're thinking, but what is that? It's a circle. <laughs> what did they there? Yep. So, so it is one of those things where you, you have to just buy into it that like, yeah, this makes sense to someone who has been taught how to read it. And let's just go with it, right? You have to think of it that way. As a side note, maybe in terms of what it says about the Vulcans of the 22nd century, what did you think about T'Pol's insistence that the Vulcans don't believe in time travel? Well, I mean, what I found most interesting in it is that Vulcans have not experienced any species before that can time travel, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do I do think that it makes sense that and this is one of the things I'd really like about the way they play the Vulcans is and you can kind of see the arrogance there uh of that they believe that they understand how the world and the universe itself works, right? And anything that's outside of their frame of reference, eh, you know, it, right. it can't possibly yeah. be. Uh, so I think it's good. And I think what it really sets up well, too, is just kind of that great thing that we saw in the original series between, like, Spock and McCoy, when they would kind of go back and forth with one another. You know, Spock could be very stubborn, uh, and and just as stubborn as McCoy, but in a different way. And so I, I think the stubbornness we we're getting to see exists very much so here, and is maybe even more ingrained in Vulcans. And so yeah, I think again it 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 adds a dimension to the show because you can see too that you have like Archer and Trip who are much more ready to accept the fantastical because they have that. I would say human imagination, right? Like they can imagine this being a thing and therefore they're open-minded to it. Speaking of trip, I also find it interesting how humans meeting these pilgrims, perhaps because of the appearance of the pilgrims, perhaps because they were being transported by someone else. Trip kind of assumes that they don't know much about technology and he's explaining yeah. <laughs> how the warp engine works. And he's like, just think of it as a great big engine. <laughs> and then one of them is like, I am a warp field theorist. So I thought that was interesting uh, to see how it's not arrogance, but it's sort of for trip. It's like, he's really proud of his engines mm-hmm. and he's really yeah. proud to explain to people how well they work. He even mentions in here, Warp 5 will get you where you're going pretty quickly. 
What I think is really interesting too on that, and and something that you know, with this whole visiting of the Great Plume of Agasoria, this idea of spirituality, and mm-hmm. does that give us a little indication of Trip thinking that because these people are more religious, may he's a, he's expecting them basically to be Amish, like you know, yeah, in their maybe, idea, right. and and so I'm yeah. I'm kind of wondering if if that has anything to do with his thought process that that that's the first thing that kind of jumps to mind yeah that's a good point and i put on the outline here to talk about the great plume of agasoria because of the theme of spirituality that's being written in the enterprise in the first season we saw the vulcan monastery already in the andorian incident and now here we have these pilgrims going to see this celestial event which they consider to be a religious event that represents the cycle of creation. But on the flip side of that, yeah, I mean, humans viewing, potentially viewing them as because they're very spiritual, they might not understand science or technology is maybe a a bit of a negative view or assumption, which does say something about humans and, and how we judge people without knowing much about them. Yeah, I think it's really interesting because you have here Archer talking about, you know, what his beliefs are and that he keeps an open mind. And, you know, I think there is a connection with that and what we were talking about with time travel. Uh, Archer is, I think, a very open minded person in in what Mm -hmm. he thinks is out there, what's a possibility. And what I love about it is that Archer shows a real humility in this whole episode and really i think a great humility in all the episodes that we've seen here so far and, and his struggle to try and figure out okay what is our responsibility out here and what are we supposed to do out here and how are we supposed to act and all of those things and we see him be open to the universe bringing him things that he might not be able to accept right away. You know, like I just, I, I'm, I'm constantly impressed with the character of Archer. And I think here again, enterprise doesn't talk a ton about, you know, religion. It's not deep space nine, but I think here they pull some of the strings that we got from deep space nine, which is to say that, there's so much about the universe that we don't understand. So who are we to say that this isn't something that is true? So I love it. I, I really, I'm, I actually kind of wish, and it would have been interesting to to get more because Phlox also talks about how he's visited many of the great religious sites on right. Earth. You yeah. know, he's been to the Peter's Basilica. You know, he's seen all these different uh, things, at different world religion sites around the world. And obviously, that's still a big part of humanity at this point. So it would have been kind of interesting maybe if they had had the guts to kind of maybe write a character on the show who, you know, was more religious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's when you look at Star Trek, there's this view often that Star Trek is separate from religion. But then DS9, as you and I, of course, have talked about extensively on the orb and as fans know, really embraces religion and makes it a part of the show. And here, coming off of Voyager and doing this next series, you can see, like you said, where 
they did pick up the threads of what worked in DS9 and kind of bringing religion or at least spirituality and science together a bit in Star Trek. And you know that it, it can work. And these aren't even the same writers. I mean, yeah, Rick Berman was a producer on both shows, but it's not like Brandon was a writer on DS9 and he brought this over, right? So it's something that we're seeing pulled into Enterprise. And the other thing I like about it in this episode is that it's not the catalyst for the story. It's part of the story, but it's not like this neutron star, these bursts are the big mystery that must be solved for the story. And that's why it's in the story. It's just simply there are these pilgrims who are going to see this religious event and humans get to learn something new about the universe and how others view it. And that inclusion in the story, I think, is it's nice to see that as Star Trek evolved over the years, the writers found ways to bring this element that was originally shunned in Star Trek, the idea that religion wouldn't exist in the future. They find ways to bring that into the story in a way that I think works quite well here. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things there and and kind of a a part of this is the story was, you know, dealing with how we deal with alien species we run into. And I think this is one more place where the Enterprise does kind of learn and Archer and the rest of the crew. It gives them an edge in the sense that, like, they're going to be more on edge now because of what's happened and always looking over their shoulder. You know, we can't just necessarily take it face value that people are maybe who they say they are. The universe is a little bit more dangerous than we thought, especially with what happens here with Silic and everything. And so to me, that was really interesting because you start this episode and it's like, hey, welcome aboard the Enterprise. And by the time you leave this episode, Archer looks like he's kind of been through hell, which he has, and their ship could have been destroyed. Yeah. All because they did stop to talk to these people, right? And so, I mean, I think there's a really interesting thing that's happening here in the series to kind of watch the progression of the difference of thought of what's out there and 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 our response to it, you know? I just think that's really interesting. Yeah. Don't talk to strangers. Could be. Uh, yeah, stop taking candy take. from strangers. <laughs> but even the beginning of this episode, it's a great contrast. Archer is like, hey, what are you doing here? You know, we're from Earth. We are looking forward to meeting you and all sorts of other people. And the freighter captain, Fraddock, is like, it's very nice to meet you. What do you want? <laughs> for him, it's just like an everyday encounter. He doesn't have time for these new people. So it shows the, the newbies in space versus the seasoned veterans in space. One other thing I want to mention, and I don't think we'll discuss it much because I know you haven't really gotten into Discovery Season 3, but there's just that moment where Trip is talking to Daniels and Daniel says, oh yeah, I don't even have a brother. And Trip says, oh, I guess you're also not from Iowa. And he says, well, I'm from Iowa. All right. Just not the one you know. Trip says, well, it's good to know Earth will still be around in 900 years. And Daniels responds, that depends on how you define Earth. And what I find interesting when you connect these two with 
especially the episode People of Earth from season three of Discovery and then what we see here. And I mentioned earlier the potential connections between the Temporal Cold War and the 32nd century that we see in Discovery. It's interesting how, yeah, Earth is still there. We're not really sure what life is like on the surface. San Francisco seems to be pretty normal, but Earth has definitely built a wall around itself and seems to be on the defensive all the time. So Earth is quite different at that point. I think that could be interesting for a future discussion. And the one other thing that I want to mention in connection here is that in Discovery in the 32nd century, we see things like the the tricorder being projected into the air from the comm badges. And, and also we just have the projected displays in Discovery in general, which looks quite futuristic. But it's interesting that the tools that Daniels uses not the temporal observatory, but the other tools that he uses function in a similar way. So it feels as if a bit of the creative uh, take on that technology may have come from Enterprise and be inspired mm. by Daniels and this episode in particular of Enterprise. Mm, that's cool. So one more thing, fun thing to talk about here as we get close to the end of running through this episode is movie night. This is the first mention of movie night. It's a famous day. It's usually Tuesday nights on the NX01. That's where the crew, they all gather together and they watch old movies from the Paramount catalog. Yeah. What do you think about the <laughs> idea, though, of like, you know, having movie night on the ship? Personally, I think it's great. I think it's really smart of them to to, to do this. And, and I you know, we've talked about this idea that even going at warp five, you know, they're not going to be running into something every five seconds, right? And so I think the idea that the crew would get together for a movie night every week is fantastic. It sounds like it's one of those things, you know, it's whoever wants to go and, you know, depends on what they're showing and, and you know, whatever. Um, but people get together and they watch a movie together. And I think that's... What I like about it is how it really connects these characters with us, you know, and instead of the very remote feeling concerto concerts you would get on the Enterprise D, this is such a much more human thing, right? Especially yeah, yeah. because it just that they would still want to watch movies together, you know, and so I a perfect. I personally loved this idea on Enterprise and I thought it was very smart and very fun, and it was always enjoyable to see which movies they were going to recommend or what movies they would be watching there on the Enterprise. And so, yeah, I mean, obviously they're all watching Paramount movies, but <laughs> still, <laughs> it's still fun. It is fun. There are a few movies they watch that are, I think, Warner Brothers movies, but for the most part, it's Paramount back catalog because they don't have to pay any royalties to <laughs> show the footage, right? Which is is kind of fun. I think it's a great idea too because the crew is so small. And if you think about a small team, think about a company, a small company, and how you build camaraderie amongst the team members and have a sense of family. So it's not just a job, but it feels exactly. like a place like you care about the people who you're working with. So here it makes perfect sense to do this on the NX01. And on the Enterprise D, I think you know, instead of movie nights, they probably have things like Geordi and Data. They probably have PowerPoint Tuesdays where 
they gather everybody into the the yep. small hall and they just give a presentation on some really boring topic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, so I I mean again, this is this is just a place where it feels more quote unquote human. And in that what I mean by that is it feels just more like us. And I I think what it also did was add this great little scene. You know, we talked last week about the growth for a character like Mayweather. And here, there's just a little bit more growth for him and for Hoshi together. And it also kind of gives you that Lower Decks feel, right? Because they are mm-hmm. the Lower Decks characters, basically. They they are the ensigns right now. Yeah. So their experience is different than our other crew members. And, and you even get that great scene with them where he's put in charge of the bridge. He's sitting on the command chair. Hoshi's kind of talked him into it. It's a great, it's a really cute scene. Like I thought this is something that could really only happen on Enterprise because of the intimacy to which these characters have in each other's lives because this is a small ship. And so, you know, they get to know each other pretty quickly. Um, it's the same thing that happens when, you know, people go on a trip together for a long extended time or if you like been on a mission trip with people or something like that. Like you spend every waking moment together, you get pretty mm-hmm. close. And these yeah. people spend every waking moment together. And I just love that scene. Now I'm picturing that scene Except instead of Hoshi, it's Tendi, and instead of Travis, it's Boimler. Yep. And I think it would yeah. work perfectly. <laughs> you're yeah. right. You're right. All right. Well, to close out here, before we give our own ratings, let's just talk about the reception. Because one thing I found interesting is that Star Trek magazine, when they did their ultimate guide, they rated this episode two out of five, which I thought was quite low for what's a very interesting episode. What did you think about that rating? That seems ridiculously low. Um, And I wonder why. And I wonder if if maybe their response is the fact that this this episode does kind of leave you on such a cliffhanger. You know, Daniel seems Mm -hmm. to be dead. And I guess maybe you could be feeling like, okay, where is this going? But even rewatching the episode, I mean, I just found it interesting again and i i was it was intrigued because i'm kind of being pulled back into the whole temporal cold war story because it's been a while since i've rewatched enterprise and so this is a again this episode is kind of giving a, a taste of what their life is like it's giving us a look at what it means for them to run into people along their journey and it's also furthering the story of the temporal cold war and in the end, it touches on parts of uh, who Vulcans are, and it gives us a end arc here in Archer's development in the sense of Archer ends this episode in a place that he seems pretty shaken. Mm-hmm. And that's I oh, how could all all five of those things I just mentioned are those are really interesting. So like I don't understand why you would rate this two out of five stars. This episode is at least average at two and a half. I'm not saying that's my rating, oh, but sure. it's like at yeah. least that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I don't get it either because there's a lot happening in this episode. You do have several distinct storylines, but I think they're all interesting. 
And it is a catalyst for a bit more excitement and intrigue coming up through the rest of the season and into season two and really beyond because the Temporal Cold War will continue to play out, especially in season three. And you're setting up a lot of things. I, If someone were watching this for the very first time and they gave it that rating, maybe I could understand that they feel like there's not enough closure here or there on something. But of course, this is rating it within the context of the season and the series. And so I, I'm a bit surprised by that for sure. As I said earlier, or as I asked earlier, if we had not gotten this story in the middle of season one, might it have felt that the season was just a bit too slow and there was no real big picture mystery developing that could hook people more? And and I think that maybe is the case. And so for that reason as well, I think this episode is deserving of more than two out of five as they gave it. So what what rating would you give this episode, Matthew? That is a good question. Um, I do think that I would probably give this, I would give this a three and a half because I'm, I'm actually pretty interested. I, and, and I think it was a good episode in the way it kind of set up the mystery. And I just enjoyed spending time with the crew, um, seeing Silic again. So yeah, I mean, I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I'm going to give this one seven compound retinas removed from Silic's eyes, which is a procedure I've had myself. And I can tell you it's not very enjoyable, but at least it was done tastefully in this episode not like the extreme graphic version that we saw in Stardust City Rag on Picard. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So we would love to hear your thoughts and your ratings as well on Cold Front. If you'd like to share those with us, there are many ways for you to do that. The best way is to join the Babel Conference on Facebook, our listeners group. If you're already a member, you know what to do. But if you're not, just search Babel, B-A-B-E-L, on Facebook, and it should come right on up. It is a closed group, so please do answer the questions and agree to the rules of the forum so that I can let you in. You can also find us on Twitter, where our username is TrekFM. That's our username throughout social media. And you can send us email by going to trek.fm slash contact. Choose to send to a show, choose Warp 5, and that'll come to Matthew and me by email. So, Matthew, when you're not looking through the 50,000 plus movies in the NX01's catalog to find out which one you're going to talk about next on the 602 Club, where can people find you? Well, I mean, it just uh, feels like I'm trying to flip through the trillion different streaming services we have these days. So at least they <laughs> right. have it all in one place. Um, but of course, you can find me on social media under the name Matt Rushing 2 any of the major social media platforms I'm there, even like Letterboxd. So check that out. Uh, you could also find me, of course, here on the 602 Club side of the network, where we talk about all of the fandoms we love that aren't Star Trek. And of course, there are some bonus shows there as well. You can find John Mills and I talking Snyder Cuts, uh, which is all of Zack Snyder's works or we're doing assembling avengers and we're going back through every single 
Marvel film and uh, looking at that series, kind of minus the hype, just to see how uh, we feel like these movies hold up. Uh, and then, of course, you can also find me here on the network. Chris, you and I, we're on the orb together where we talked Star Trek Deep Space Nine. We promise we're going to get some more out for you there. Uh, and then, of course, uh, also doing literary treks, uh, books and comics of Star Trek, where just had the interview with James Swallow, where we talked about the second book in the Coda series. So I hope you'll be listening to that. It's really fun uh, interview there. And then uh, over on the Nerd Party Network, I did Owl Posts with Drea Kaufman. That is a completed podcast. It is all about Harry Potter. We did uh, every single chapter of the series. And then I'm also doing aggressive negotiations with John Mills as we're talking about Star Wars each and every week. Uh, But Chris, when you're not lost in the temporal ether, where can people find you? Well, I would like to be lost there because probably it would mean that I would have more time or I could rewind or I could do all the things I need to do to manage my schedule. Usually I'm putting together the great magazine of Agasoria, which seems to take 11 years to produce every issue, but that's what keeps me away from podcasting most of the time. But I do get a little bit of that in. You can find me on The Ready Room with Larry Nemechek and uh, Interface. And on Interface here, a Star Trek Universe podcast, of course, you mentioned the Orb and Literary Treks, and I'm still working on some behind-the-scenes things for the network as well. So check those out if you're interested in hearing my other thoughts about Star Trek. And if you'd like to chat with me, the best place to find me in social media is on Twitter, where my username is C. Brian Jones, letter C and Brian with a Y. That's my username everywhere in social media, but Twitter is where I'm most active. So I look forward to talking to you there. Now, if you'd like to help us keep Warp 5 and the 602 Club and all the other shows that we're doing on the network going, we could definitely use your help through Patreon. Just check out patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm to find out how you can support the network, become involved in the network. We can really use your help. It's been a very difficult couple of years for us and we have big plans for the future but we cannot do it without your support and i really want to say thank you to everyone who's supporting us now you are the reason that the network is still alive so thank you very much for your help all right matthew well next time we're going to return back to somewhat normal space no temporal observatories for us as we face off against a silent enemy that sounds exciting chris so Let's go. <laughs> <laughs>